My name is Dean Wirtz and Cynthia Zoko. And you are listening to Pen Pals, bringing you Philadelphia's stories from a distance. And today we have Goodwell Zhao, PhD, here to talk about his experience as well as um, the state of medical care in Zimbabwe and a bunch of other fun things. So if you'd like to introduce yourself, Goodwell, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, that'd be great. My name is Goodwill Nzola, as uh, Dean uh, just mentioned. Uh, thank you, Dean, uh, for inviting me, and thank you, Cynthia, again for having me here. I am originally from Zimbabwe. I grew up in Zimbabwe from the age of, obviously, zero to 21, and then I came to the United States for, for college. But my story that led me to coming to the United States is a very long story, but I'm just going to give you a, a gist of it. So what happened in 2000, when I was 11 years old, I was bitten by a snake. And because of uh, lack of medical care or uh, medical supplies in the clinic that was too far away. I, uh, my leg was, I ended up getting an amputation in the city back in, 2000, uh, in 2001. And then because of that, I could not go back to school in the village because obviously the, going, uh, the distance between uh, my homestead and all the way to school was a little bit too much for uh, for an amputee to walk. So I decided that I would go to school in the city or uh, to the school for the disabled. And one thing led to another. I was doing uh, relatively okay in the school in, uh, for the disabled. So I ended up getting a scholarship to a secondary school. From there, I ended up joining a band and uh, we, I was a musician for about 10 years. And with my band, we, went to, we toured uh, Europe, went to Switzerland, Netherlands, uh, Belgium, and I don't remember the other three, the other, the other country, but anyway, it's, it's been a long time right now. So then in 2008, my band also came to the United States to tour here. And so we toured around, we, we, we had concerts in New York City, concerts in uh, San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles, and also New Jersey. And so then when I went back, I was so motivated to come back to the United States for school because most of the most of our concerts here were, were actually at school, at schools. And so I, I got to learn more about uh, education here and specifically science and chemistry because I was very, very fascinated with chemistry. So when I went back to Zimbabwe, I uh, kind of opened my own lab. We can go into that, uh, into that story later, but uh, because of my interest in science, I ran into people. I met people that were willing to help me to continue my education. And the rest is, is history. I ended up uh, getting to, uh, you know, to Nazareth College in, in New York. And that's where I got my bachelor's in chemistry. And then I proceeded on to getting my PhD in um, molecular medicine and translational sciences at the, at the Workforce University. And then I did my um, postdoctoral training at um, University of Pennsylvania. So there is a lot to unpack in that elevator pitch of a life story. And I wanna start by saying, I think it's beautifully ironic that you had too long of a walk to school, yet you traveled the entire world. So yeah. I think that is, that is amazing. And quickly, what instrument did you play? Um, so I, I, pl I played, uh, well, they are called marimbas, right? So I played marimbas, uh, uh, the baritone marimba, and also the uh, the drums. Awesome. So I was a drum, I was a drummer 
back vocals also I was doing that and then uh, you know playing marimbas that is very cool because I think that it's it's always good to have a little bit of flavor in science so I think that it's very valuable that you brought this kind of love of music into what you were doing so I guess starting kind of rewinding and downshifting a little bit more about the experience of getting your leg amputated and talking a little bit about the state of medical care in Zimbabwe at the time. When you say you weren't able to get the treatment that you needed in your village, Mm -hmm. do you mean that they just didn't have the right anesthetics? They didn't have the right doctors on call? It was only in the city? Speak a little bit more about that if you could, please. Mm -hmm. Doctors on call, and that's that's. I, I wish I could say that in my village. So, first of all, my, my village really is, is very remote, it's in the middle of nowhere, it's very far from almost everything. Um, besides the country itself not having um good health uh, healthcare supplies and everything, uh, the clinics that are even far away from, from, from the cities are stopped with pretty much just maybe under antibiotics or sometimes just like basic uh, over-the-counter medications that you, that, that you find here. But even those clinics too, they're so far away from, uh, from, uh, from villagers. For example, in my, in my case, I got bitten by a snake around seven o'clock in the, in the evening. And my, my mother could not carry me to the, to, to the, to the nearest clinic because it was, too, it was too far away. The next morning, my brother ended up pushing me in a wheelbarrow to the clinic got to the clinic, they didn't, obviously at the time, I did not know it was actually a snake bite, right? And so when we got to the, to the clinic, they were asked, they asked us what it was and they did, they, we said, we don't know, but we think it is a snake. So they did not have any um, antivenom, venoms. And so they were giving me antibiotics for about two weeks. So you can imagine the rest of the story there. So my leg was pretty much you know, falling apart and I, you know, my, the flesh on top of my foot were pretty much like falling apart and I could see my ankle bones and everything. So by the time it was too, by the time we realized it was too late, we, uh, my, my mother ended up borrowing money from a relative so that she could get me to, to the hospital in, in the city. And that was about 200, that was, that's about a 250 uh, kilometer distance from my village all the way to the, to the, to the city. And by the time I, sh- I showed up to, to the hospital in the city, obviously my leg was completely uh, messed up. It was pretty bad. So the doctors decided to amputate it. So yeah, in, if I had made it in time to the hospital in the city, I would have been okay because uh, back at the time, in, in the, back then the medications, I, I believe that they did have uh, antivenoms in the city, but not in the village. And also the village clinics, uh, even right now, they are stopped with, uh, with, nurse, with, with nurses that uh, they don't have proper training to handle all the kind of cases that they, that they have showing up at their, their doorstep, doorsteps. So again, I'm not un- undervaluing or undermining the, the, the experiences of the nurses in the clinics, but really you, you can imagine a population of maybe 5,000 um, villagers going to, the, to a very small clinic with different uh, health issues there's a high probability that that one nurse that uh, is in control or in charge of that uh, uh, clinic might not have all the skills to help those uh, those those patients. So I would say that's the, the kind of status of uh, of the healthcare when I was there back when I when I got my when I got the, the snake bite. 
Yeah. And I mean, to say for any society anywhere in the world, I mean, most physicians are generalists. I mean, it's, it's gotta be tough to, no matter what you have to have people that are specialized in special things because the body is so complex. So I, you can't blame the Zimbabwean medical system because I can imagine they have an influx of people and they just do what they can as the generalists that makes sense for them to be. And um, I think now, if you could talk a little bit about, you said you really liked chemistry and you really enjoyed science. Do you think it was a direct result of this experience or yeah. at the school you found that you really felt a love for it? Well, there, there are two things, of course. I would say the, the incident itself was, was pro probably, I think the most important thing that happened to me in a way actually, if I, if I were to say it honestly, because it was that moment in the hospital where I, where I started realizing how important physicians are. Because without them, honestly, my leg was, was pretty much deteriorating all, all the way up and I could have actually died with sepsis. But, you know, they, they amputated my leg and on the operating room, I remember counting, you know, from 10 to one and I didn't even finish it with counting it to one. And then obviously I, Back then, I used to, to say, to tell my parents that I actually died, but my, my, my doctors brought me back to life. So I died so that they could take off my, my, my dead leg. But at the same time, they brought me back to life. So I think it was that moment that I realized that really I want to be part of a, a community of people that are actually helping people like myself. So should I be in any capacity to help someone in the future? I want to play that role. So I decided I was gonna go into medicine. How, ex how exactly, I did not know at the time. But the only thing that I was thinking about, the only thing that I was sure of becoming was becoming a doctor back then. So by the time I got to high school, I then stumbled upon these chemicals, uh, you, know, you know, chemicals that I, that I usually used in a, in a chemistry lab, in a high school chemistry lab. And these chemicals had expired in, in, in 1963, most of them, right? And I decided to start uh, reading uh, experiments from a textbook and actually do, running those experiments with those expired chemicals in a closet. And that's how I became a chemist, pretty much. And when, when, uh, when that uh, was going very well, or at least like, it was going very well and until I almost burned down the, the building. Um, and then my, the head of the, uh, the center ended up looking for someone that could come in and help me uh, and doing things properly. And also she ended up helping me to get to, uh, uh, to, to a better school that was actually doing a science in the right way. And so I, that's, how I, that's how I ended up at uh, Christian Brothers College in Zimbabwe. And from then I, I, I obviously I studied uh, chemistry, physics and math. And then from Christian Brothers College, I applied to college uh, in the United States, but Again, it was mainly a lot of people that were involved in helping me to get to where I am. Awesome. And I think that it's also great that you took your love of medicine and wanting to help people and not just talking it, but also walking it. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about the lab that you have established in Zimbabwe? I feel like you mentioned that a little bit in the beginning there. Yeah, so I, well, I, I call it a lab now because it was for me then, but uh, it was not. It was not very. Uh, 
well known by anyone at, at the school at the time, actually, because when I found the chemicals, it was, like I said, it was in a closet. Um, these were chemicals that were like just stored away. And when I broke into the room because I was the head boy of the school, so I had, you know, access to most of the places at, at school. So anyways, when I found out about these chemicals, I decided that I was going to do these experiments without anybody knowing. Mm -hmm. So what I would do, I would go in uh, early in the morning, around maybe 3, 3.30 in the morning, and leave around six o'clock, go back to my dormitory and then clean up and go to class. And people won't, would not even know it. And then in the evening, I would do the same thing, right? So it was not until there was an incident that uh, my, the, the administrator kind of said, look, if, if you want to continue doing this, we may, have, we may, we may need you to do something in a proper way. So that's how she ended up finding someone that could, could come in and help me and learn uh, the, uh, you know how to do experiments in a well-ventilated room of course okay <laughs> yeah Got so, it. Right. um i'm actually curious to know how you even went about knowing what experiments to carry out in the first place were you just kind of throwing things together and hoping something nice would happen well, so, well you know not necessarily i think at the beginning it was like that but then um we're talking about 2006, 2007, right? So at this point, uh, I had already been like into, I, I was already like, I'd already traveled to Europe with my friends. So when I was in Europe, actually, if you ask my, some of my band, my band members, uh, some of the band members, they would tell you that I had my chemistry books along with the trip. Like I was just reading and whatever. And so when we had a break, I would go to the libraries and find books in, 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 uh, in, in the libraries. Uh, in Europe, and so I ran into a chemistry into into a chemistry textbook called uh, Chemistry for Dummies. So that chemistry book had uh, experiments in it. So I would just try to follow the follow the instructions from that book, and try to replicate it. So, for example, uh, one of the experiments that I was really interested in was to uh, is I think it's a basic experiment that experiment that is used to look at blood density using copper sulfate. But I did not have uh, copper sulfate. But I knew I knew that you could make copper sulfate from uh, using sulfuric acid and and something that has copper in it. And we had there were a bunch of stones in the in the in the cupboard that were labeled copper something. So I was like, you know, what if I mix this together, burn them up, and see if I can get if I get, if I can make copper sulfate? Obviously, I was not you know, my my mathematics and my calculations were off. That's probably why I ended up almost blowing up things. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that's how I, I was doing it. So it wasn't like just mixing things randomly, but there was some sort of like method to it, uh, without the proper calculations. I can say that is fascinating. <laughs> Um, and I guess now moving along about your transition to America, and I think this is where Cynthia can really shine for the conversation because you also went through a similar experience of moving to America as a first generation uh, immigrating about what it was like coming as a culturally first generation immigrant African and kind of coming into the culture um, with both first generational Africans and also multi-generational African-Americans. What was that kind of like? Was it like, was it, did you find yourself gravitating more towards one of the groups, people in general? What was that like? So I would say that uh, uh, I was very lucky 
that the program that helped me to come to the United States uh, is called United States Achievers Program. Uh, and this program uh, helps about 30 to 40 students a year to come to the United States. Uh, and now they have expanded the program to help, help them to go anywhere in the world, really. But before, prior to coming to the United States as a group, what they do, they do an orientation to tell us what, you know, how to uh, behave in America or how, how, to, how the money works here and how everything works. Or how, why not, how not to, call, to just call 911 for, for info kicks and giggles, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, anyways, when one of the subjects that we discussed, uh, or at least they, they told us to be aware of is uh, your cultures. Like how are you going to amalgamate your cultures when you get to America? And so for me, I think it was a very good uh, lesson that I, I, I was lucky to have coming in because I did not have any prejudice uh, against one race over another. And I was not really, I wouldn't say that I, I gravitated towards one group of people versus the another, because even at Christian Brothers College of uh, itself, the school is, is, a, is a boys school, but, but there, were other, there were white students at the school. And I used to hang out a lot with the white students in, in Zimbabwe. So when I got to America, so if you mix the, the education that I got from the orientation from my group, and also my experience at Christian Brothers College, I really gravitated towards anybody really. But my, I would say my, my first two friends, one was white, one was black. And the difference, this is I think what you're trying to ask. The difference is that my white friend was asking me, you know, how showers work in Zimbabwe. But my black friend was not asking me about how, what do we eat and how do showers work in Zimbabwe. So I think that's what you're trying to, to, to ask because for me, when I was, uh, you know, obviously with, the, with those two friends, uh, obviously I, I saw them very differently and I treated them very differently. Um, however, I never thought of one being better than the other in any way. Yeah, that's, right. that's really great to hear. And uh, talking also about how you were, I'm curious, what did they tell you more about how to act in America? Like, do you remember other interesting things that they told you about, like about American culture? Because in my upbringing, there were just a lot of cultures growing up in Connecticut and then also coming to Philly, where I'm kind of almost under the impression that what's very interesting about American culture is it is based on your family. Like American culture is so like, if this family is Italian, they raise you as an Italian family who might be right next to an Irish family that raises their children like an Irish family that might be right next door to a Zimbabwean family that raises their family like the Zimbabwean way. So I'm curious how like a, an introductory lesson to American culture is this is how Americans do it. So, so I would say in that orientation uh, discussion, really, they were not really telling us how to handle some specific cultures or how to behave, but really how to respect. Mm -hmm. That was more the, the conversation uh, kind of dwelled too much on that, and which I think uh, is very African for me, I, I, because even growing up, it was not only my mother that disciplined me. It was not just my, my brothers, my older brothers. It was not just my father, but it was also the rest of the village. When people talk about uh, it takes a village to raise a kid in Africa, 
that's actually not just the same, really. So when you, what, what you're describing in terms of like here where you grow up in an Italian family, it's all this Italian idea, nothing else matters. Or if you grow up from this, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you are like a Chinese family in America, you, you get to only uh, be exposed to that. But for me, honestly, I grew up in a family that really believed in open-minded. Actually believe like anyone you meet in life is going to have an impact on your life. And you just have to be able to see what are the important aspects of their culture that you can bring into, into yours. And as you are bringing other parts or some cultures into, into your culture, you're going to lose some aspects of your own culture. And so I already knew that. So coming in, honestly, I think I came in with an open mind that I will probably by, by the time I'm, I'm like five years in, 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 in college, four years in college, I would have lost some of my, you know, my Africanness, if you want to say that. But uh, yeah, so I, I think that it was that open-mindedness that helped me to assimilate very quickly and also have as many friends and enjoy my college uh, experiences and also be able to connect with professors and also even common people that uh, I would meet, like when I when I would go to like uh, the Catskills, for example. Mm -hmm. And even when I was going to visit uh, the, the, the Lottery Club, for example, I would just like, enjoy those conversations because for me I was not uh I was no longer just a village boy I was no longer just an age uh, someone that's going to college to get an education but I was actually becoming a, a global student so I understood that I, I understood that responsibility that I would not just be uh, one person with one culture that's going to have to uh maintain that wall around him so I think that's it, it, it's very confusing if you really think about it, but at the same time, it's very easy to understand that. You know, I was not raised to think of one culture for life. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's definitely, I think a lot of people do come out and then, you know, you come with an open mind. But I'm wondering if there was nothing or no experience that caused you some culture shock that you had trouble reconciling with your African culture, your Zimbabwean culture. Yes, patience. So when I, what I mean by patience is that uh, obviously in Africa, we talk very slowly sometimes, but in America, a conversation goes very fast. And coming in, I did not speak English very well. And even now I still struggle a little bit, right? But um, so sometimes I would have to write down what I was gonna say in a conversation. But if you can imagine in a group of friends in college, there are 16 conversations taking place. So by the time you look at your script, uh, the conversation is like, nine, you know, there are 16 conversations away. People did not have the patience to, uh, to let me in, but I had to find a way to let myself into their groups, right? So again, I think the level of patience uh, in terms of co the culture here, that's, I wouldn't blame it on, on one person or, or the culture. But I think it's just the way of life here that things are so fast paced, right? And just think this is also the, the nature of college as well. So I think that I kind of uh, struggled a little bit with that, where uh, if I was struggling to get my words right, if I was struggling to get my sentence right or my pronunciation, uh, people would not really give themselves enough time to try to understand what I was trying to say. So that 
a little bit uh, was a little bit painful at the beginning, but uh, I got used to it over time, and I started being, uh, you know, taking control of the conversation. So I, I learned very quickly that if you want to be listened to, you bring up the topic. You don't wait for other people to bring out bring up their topics because if they bring the, bring up their, uh, their topic, they are going to talk about it in their own cultural uh, uh, way of. Um, running the conversation or with their, you know, inside jokes and everything that I will not even understand. That's another thing too. Jokes in America were not funny when I got here. <laughs> I didn't find funny at all. And then I would say my own jokes and then laugh at my own jokes by myself. <laughs> <laughs> so your jokes weren't funny to them either. Yeah, exactly. So it was like, ah, okay. You. So over time, I was like, okay, you know what? I understand. So we are actually different. Now I need to find out. And so when I, what I talked about the last time, that when you start gaining a part of another culture, you start losing a part of yourself. This is what I kind of found, uh, learned very quickly. When I went back to Zimbabwe 2015, I started speaking like Americans. I started actually talking very fast. And if someone was like, you know, running, you could see their wheel, the wheels running their heads as they're trying to complete a sentence or something. I was like, dude, get the sentence going already, come on. But when I was growing up, that was never a thing. You could sit around because, you know, nobody has anywhere to go in the village. The only the only place to go is to the river and to farm. So they have the whole time to listen to each other. So, but I found out that when I went back, I was the one that was no longer patient. Right. So patience was a culture and, shock for me. And this is something that I I talked to a lot about about I've, I've talked a lot about with uh with other people who are immigrants. It's when you come from a different country and after a while you think you've assimilated with American culture, but you don't really we're in a weird position where we don't really fit anywhere. So if you're put in a room with, like for me, since I'm, I'm originally Nigerian, if I was put in a room yeah. with someone who's very Nigerian and someone who's very American, I don't fit either. I'm just somewhere in the middle. And so yeah. like, we've talked a lot about how you accepted American culture and how you learned and, and assimilated with American culture, but how do you think you were received? How do you think you were perceived when you met people? So yeah, the concept of straddling cultures is very hard. It's very, it's, it's very challenging sometimes. But if you are patient enough with yourself, I think you get to a point where you, where you realize actually you don't belong anywhere. And you just be, get comfortable with that, uh, that aspect. So as far as being received here, for example, even now, right? There are, I get into conversations sometimes where I, I still get asked questions about Africa and I'm supposed to talk on behalf of all Africans. But people forget that what I'm telling them is about my village. And when I was when I was in Africa, the only Africa I knew was about five miles of radius, right? Five mile radius, that's all I knew. That's the Africa I knew. So it, all, every, anything I wanna tell you about Africa, that's all I can tell you, right? But then they end up using that as a, as, a, as a judgment or as a, or as a repre representation of Africa as a whole. So that's how I'm received in some groups here where I am received as a, um, as a representative, as an African representative. 
if you want to know about Africa, talk to that guy. If you want about if you want to know about Shona culture, talk to Goodwill. If you want to know about how Shona men behave in Zimbabwe, talk to Goodwill, right? And that for me is a little bit off-putting. I don't like that in many ways because my experiences as a Shona man in, in, in Zimbabwe, obviously I left my village when I was 11 years old. And most of what I've learned, obviously from my father, I can, I can only extrapolate. And what I'm say, what I, whatever I wanna tell you about African men, it's just gonna be something that I captured back then. I don't know if my father's behaving the same way. I don't know if all Shona men right now are behaving the same way that I, that I, that I knew 10 years ago. So that's how I'm received here. And that's a little bit weird for me because sometimes I, I end up having to, I, I end up telling them anyways, but I still know that I'm not gonna go on and on and lecture them, give them, give them a 20 minute TED talk about, well, this is not really what Africa is. I'm only telling you about this, yada, yada, yada. I'm not gonna do that, right? But I end up telling them what I can. That's the aspect here. But then when you're talking about my, how I'm received back home, it's a different aspect. All right again, where now they know that I've been in America for a very long time. There are two groups back home, right? One group of people that see me as obviously an income source. And then another one that see me as, oh, who do you think you are? You got nothing to tell us because you've, you've, never, you've never been in Zimbabwe for that, for in the past 10 years. So you don't know anything about Zimbabwean culture. You cannot talk anything about Zimbabwe. You don't know anything. You, you are now American. Anything you say is gets judged on the background that you are actually coming from America. So you get dismissed. So now I'm lost. Where do I belong? When I'm here, I, I, I represent Africa. When I go to Africa, I don't, I'm no longer Africa, African. So I have gotten comfortable accepting that I actually may not belong anywhere. So is it that you don't have the need to belong anywhere or is it that you just don't think that anywhere accepts you so you're just okay with not being accepted in either place? It's actually the reality that I don't think I belong anywhere because both sides, both of those extremes are very true because when I'm really here, people see me as that and I know for sure that some of the way I talk, some of the way I think, are based off of the way I grew up, right? But when I talk to people in Zimbabwe, I know that the way I think now and the way I act is definitely because of the way I have, you know, the things that I've learned in America. So really, I think this is true for, for most of us. Even people that are going for, for from, uh, say, uh, a small town like Skinny Atlas in New York, and they go to a big city in New York City. They are experiencing the same thing. Once they go back to their own to, the, to their own uh, uh, little town, they are no longer seen the same way. So I think we are all pretty much wandering around. We don't actually belong anywhere. Once you leave your homestead, you are no longer uh, you no longer belong somewhere. And and this is true for most of us, especially young people that are like now moving around a lot. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and so, I'm sorry, Dean. <laughs> um, and so, just bringing it forward a little bit, even now, what are some 
some things that people say to you or some so for me for example um sometimes i talk and when i say i've only been here for 10 years oh you speak really good english we speak english in nigeria right and for some reason most people tend to believe that um if you're from africa your english is just automatically not supposed to be good or right. you know you're not supposed to be well spoken or you know i oh i didn't expect this or that oh i can't believe you've only been here that long you know and then you have to go through explaining and and in in some ways there are some people i don't mind explaining to because i know that it, they're really interested in knowing and some of it does just come off as blatant ignorance you know yeah. and so yeah. like for you what are some of those things that some of those things that kind of make you feel uncomfortable um that people say to you that you're just like I really can't believe that you guys really believe this hmm. for me first it was uh clothing because when I was in college I was told like what what do people wear in Zimbabwe like, well, they wear jeans and, and clothes like t-shirts like what I'm wearing right now this I brought it from Zimbabwe was it really they close the area like that. So again, it's, I, I think that's a little bit extreme, right? Mm -hmm. And, but I don't run into issues like that anymore, right? It's mostly the English part. But for me, when people say, so, you know, you speak very well, you know, very well now, I'm like, actually, I don't, and I didn't. And so it, it, the, the situation that you run into, like, oh, you speak good English for someone from, from Nigeria, Mm -hmm. It actually applies for me because I actually grew up in the village and we actually did not speak any English, right? Even, even though I went through school and I was supposed to be learning English through school, but the schools that I went to, they were not very good schools in terms of like teaching me English until I was, I was in, at CBC. So that kind of a conversation actually makes sense to me and I, I am open to talk openly about that. But I always remind people that not everyone is like that. I'm probably maybe the one percent of uh, people in my in my position right now that you that you're going to have a you know have them say what I'm saying because most people grew up with TV what they grew up watching the Kardashians just as you may you, you have been and they've watched all the TV shows that you've watched so they speak probably in most cases better than better English than most people that I've, I've heard here in Zimbabwe so I end up correcting people so I think honestly for me it was that that you know, experience in college where people just make comments about, or oh, do you actually have uh, nice houses like running water in the city in Zimbabwe, or it's just it's just like, you know, everybody lives in huts and stuff. Nice. But for me, since I come from a village, I actually tell them, I, I give them a comparison. Look, actually in my village, there's no running water right now as I speak right now, even today. My sisters and uh, my mother are walking probably a kilometer and a half or even three miles to collect water. And that, th those things are still happening. But if they were to have that conversation with you, you would feel a little bit offended because you would say, come on, look, I, I, I'm, I'm from Lagos. There's no such a thing. Everybody has running water. So I would say there are some conversations that many people might find a little bit of putting, but in my case, they actually do apply. Okay. I, I can understand that. But like you said, you know, they're all different. And, and, and again, some people do ask because they're curious and some people, you know, say certain things that are condescending. So like a, an example I would give is recently, and this didn't happen to me directly, but recently um, an American artist went to Nigeria to perform. 
And um, when he posted it on his, his social media page, there were a lot of Americans, including African-Americans, which is something we'll get into, um, making statements like, um, oh, wow, they have phones there. So they have phones and they go to concerts, but they don't have water. Um, someone even made a statement like, I can smell it all the way from here. And, you know, some of those, are, yeah, some of those things are just ridiculous comments that are incredibly condescending for just yeah. absolutely no reason. And these are people who haven't left their small cities or their small towns. And, and um, you know, I'll be the first to say Nigeria has problems. So does America. And there, there are parts of, of Nigeria that are way better than certain parts of America. But mm-hmm. I think that some Americans are so small-minded and have been so, like, so conditioned to believe that they have the best, they are the best, and anything and everything that's different from them is inferior, right? And I think that that's why certain people who, even though they haven't left, you know, their immediate surroundings, um, think that it's okay to cast certain aspersions to other places that they have no clue about. You know, so like I said, some people will ask questions that are that, you know, that they just they really just want that information. And some people just make certain statements that are just straight up condescending. Um, And no, actually, I I think that that actually happens a lot. Right. But I think for people in your position and my position, uh, lucky enough that uh, we are surrounded with people that want to learn. Right. And I have been lucky in most cases that. Even when I am in a, in a position where I'm in the middle, middle of nowhere, uh, West Virginia, for example, I was in West Virginia and people would ask me questions that you would probably uh, label as condescending. But I take those questions very seriously. At the same time, also try to contextualize their question in their own understanding. Because sometimes they don't understand, they don't know. And sometimes they actually want to learn. But if they're just saying like, you know, I can smell it from here in that, in that kind of situation, it's, it's difficult to actually not be uh, reactive and yeah. end up saying, you know, uh, very, very bad words. But uh, I, I feel like in, in our position, we are so lucky to be surrounded by people that, are, that want to learn. Like right now, I mean, I'm, I'm talking with you guys where we are, we are pretty much really going about this conversation, trying to understand how people understand one subject versus the other. So I always take the time uh, to be patient with myself when when I get a question that may be condescending. I'm like, okay, uh, so, okay, I'll tell you one aspect and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you a different aspect and then you can think about how to look at it. So that's, that's how I usually go about it. But yeah, sometimes it's very painful you end up, you, you cringe inside, but you have to be able to uh, educate when you can. But then it also is extremely exhausting when you have to find yourself constantly educating. Yeah. And I think that it's just to kind of bring it in a little bit, because this is a wonderful conversation. We could go on about this for hours, if not days, but I'm just curious about how that feeling of being an outsider, and I can never mark on your or Cynthia's experience and compare it to what I've done in my life. But personally, I love the natural sciences because at the end of the day, you can't really control people's opinion of you or what they're going to tell you or how they're going to feel about who you are as a person. Whereas with the natural sciences, you can dig into that and you can find truth and you can help people in ways that 
they yeah. can't help themselves. Do you find yourself in a similar kind of state of joy by being able to do that outside of what you can't control? Yeah. Oh, honestly, uh, it, science is, it has been, and I think this is, a, remember when you asked me back then uh, when we started, like, is it because of the experience in the, with the snake bite or something else? So this is the second part, right? Where for me, it is the truth. Essentially in anything, there's an essence of truth that exists out there. When you are sick, something has to be wrong. At a molecular level, or it, uh, you know, it obviously started from a body level, right? Something, and then down to the organ level, and all the way to the molecular level. So I grew up with a father that was uh, an herbalist. He would go into the into the into the woods and forage for like medicine and give medicine to people, and actually cure people for uh, you know infections and all the small, uh, very minor conditions. And so when I was uh, you know, in college doing chemistry. And even when I was getting my PhD, uh, developing a model that is now can, you know, can be used for drug discovery and neurodegenerative diseases. For me, in essence, that's, it gives me freedom to know that what I discovered, it's the truth everywhere. No matter who you are, no matter, no matter how much you don't like me, it is what it is. I know that I developed a blood brain barrier a based system that can be used to understand molecules that can go into the brain and what effect they have on, on the brain cells. No matter where you are, underwater, well, uh, on Mars, you don't like me, you hate me, you, you hate my mother, it doesn't matter. It's the truth. And I'm sure your mother is a wonderful lady. And moving <laughs> oh, into your research, <laughs> you talked about the blood-brain barrier. And I just want you to talk a little bit more about what that means. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry. I just I just dropped it in there without, without even... Uh, oh, no. I, so, yeah. <laughs> when I was... So when I was uh, in uh, grad school, I decided that I was going to work on a project that could at least be used, be useful in, in, in clinical developments for specifically neurodegenerative diseases. These are diseases such as Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and uh, ALS. And most of these diseases, there are no therapies available for these people, right? And I wanted to be involved in a, in a, in a, in a research program or, or research study that can actually maybe start to, it can be used to, uh, to understand some aspects of those diseases. So I ended up developing this model that it's pretty much like a, a mini brain. I developed a mini brain that mimics a portion, a little portion of, 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 the, of the brain, right? Where uh, when I say the blood brain barrier in my model, it actually has a blood and barrier on the outside where this is a, a barrier that prevents all the toxins that are circulating in your, in, in your bloodstream from getting into the brain, into the into your, into your brain tissue to kill your neurons that are responsible for your like uh, normal function, memory and thinking and even processing everything that we're talking about right now, right? So, so that model now can be used to understand uh, what kind of drugs that you can uh, you, you can uh, you can use to actually treat when neurons are are, are no longer in, in good in good condition in healthy conditions, and for drugs that can cross the the blood-brain barrier, you can start to ask questions such as 
what effect those drugs have once they cross the barrier. Because sometimes in neurodegenerative diseases or in, in, in some of the uh, drugs that have been proposed out there in clinical trials, after they, they, uh, you know, they, they do well in animal studies, they end up not doing well in, in humans because once they cross the, the blood-brain barrier, they end up becoming toxin to, uh, toxic to the, to the human cells and they end up getting withdrawn from the clinical trials. So this model was, I developed it using human cells, using, I, uh, <laughs> using stem cells. I have to like down, down, down my, my language a little bit. <laughs> was just, I was using stem cells uh, that, are, that were uh, derived from human uh, cells, right? From human skin cells that were you know, pushed back to, to, to becoming stem cells. And then uh, we incorporated into the, into, into, into the model where you can actually start to see uh, the organoids actually forming some sort of like portions of the brain. So you're able to retro-synthesize stem cells using already determined cells like skin cells? Mm -hmm. you, get, you can take skin cells and turn them back into stem cells and then take that stem cell, push it back towards a brain cell. That is incredible. I had no idea we had that kind of technology. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I didn't either. I thought they had to be stem cells before you could then have no. them hardened too. Yeah. No. So yeah, you, you can take the most of the stem cells, anything that is called IPSCs, induced pluripotent stem cells, those are actually developed, most of them are developed from skin cells. Wow. Nice. <laughs> So um, I was actually curious as to what your inspiration was for your thesis, just briefly. My inspiration really, oh, well, the, well, I was kind of forced into it <laughs> because no, this is how it happened. My, my, my mentor was a, is a great mentor. He's a wonderful guy, right? I, I show up in his, in his office. This is the first day I'd, I'd been emailing him for seven weeks. I want to do a rotation in your lab. I want to do a rotation in your lab. He was not responding. And he was like, finally, I have to respond to this kid. Come into my office and talk to me. And then when I showed up, he said, okay, I think you will do. There are two projects. This is happening in five minutes. So there are two projects. One is in kidney and another one is in brain. Which one are you going to work on? I was like, okay, I'm going to do brain. That's how it happened. And then after that, and, after, and then after that, he was, yeah, once it started, three weeks in, I was like, okay, so I want a, fun a functioning blood-brain barrier in, within the next uh, three months. Well, I was a chemistry major in, in, in college, right? I had a little bit of biology. So how was is, how is I gonna go from a, from a chemist to, be, to developing a blood-brain barrier? So again, I had to be very resourceful, of course, uh, get as much knowledge uh, as understanding as I could from the existing uh, trainee or uh, sort of like a postdoc that was in, in the lab that helped me to understand the, 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 uh, the, the brain cells. He was a, he's a neurosurgeon right now. And he was helping me to understand what, what brain cells are and how do they function very quickly, giving me all the articles and reading up on it. And then I started learning about the, uh, the deficits in neurodegenerative diseases in terms of drug discovery, like how there are no medication for Alzheimer's disease. There are no medication for, for Parkinson's disease. So I got really motiv motivated by all of that. I was like, you know what? If I could do something to help these populations in any capacity that I could. And again, I don't want to suggest here that this model is actually beautiful and it's being used out there for, no, it's not. I developed it. Now it's just a matter of like, 
being uh, using it to understand if you can actually use it for the purposes that I'm, I'm mentioning right now, right? But as far as like understanding small molecules or even uh, even synthetic molecules that are that are designed by chemists, you can actually use it to understand all of that. But I, I hope that one day it can be used uh, to develop drugs against like these diseases that don't have any therapies. Yeah, I think it'll definitely be very useful. Um, but it's very interesting that you mentioned working um, closely with the neurosurgeon. Um, and in your current position as a medical science liaison, how do you think that um, physicians can um, work to better bring up um, groundbreaking research or facilitate it? So I don't, I, I'm not speaking for my company here. Uh, this is a, a complete disclosure for conflict of interest. I am not speaking, uh, this, uh, these are my own opinions. Right. So I believe medicine is medicine and research are important, right? But as my previous uh, my previous mentor, you always used to say, academic research has a place in in clinical applications, and I believe that. And also, uh, big companies have a role in. Um, in bringing medicine to, to a lot of people. The difference is that in academia, we, we focus on, on discovering all these things like what I did with my model, right? And we come up with all these nifty ways of like turning uh, skin cells into stem cells that you can turn into brain cells and then you can start playing with those brain cells and to see how to make them sick and how, how to make them great again. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then, and then, but, 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 but the point I'm trying to make is that there is a way to uh, bring things together when you look at research, like academic research and clinical applications, right? There's a little bit of hes hesitation in, in, academia, in academia where a project has to be completely 100% sure, it has to be ready and all that before it is actually pushed into a clinical trial. For, obvious reasons, of course, because you don't want to just go into the clinical trial without anything that's completely developed, right? And at the same time, you have pharmaceutical companies that have the, uh, they have the confidence. So if, if something is showing promising results, they'll go ahead and do it and because they have the funding to do it and all that stuff. So as far as like how science plays in, 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 the, in medicine, I think it's just between, uh, you know, it, it lies between uh, marrying the uh, the ideas that come from academic institutions and also the boldness that is within uh, big companies and applying all of that to actually big problems such as neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's. I don't know if I answered, uh, if I answered your question. Yeah, that, that definitely, I, I was actually going to ask the same question. That was a beautiful answer, thank you. Yeah, um, I, I think you definitely did. But what I missed was how physicians themselves might be able to facilitate that. So definitely big pharma and academic research are very, very different. So like yeah. working in industry and academia, um, you know, the, the pace of research is different. Um, you know, the 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 final, what, whatever you're looking to get finally, um, obviously academia does try to influence um, therapy, but, um, you know, papers is also a big thing in academia. Yes. You know, pharmaceutical companies just care about the therapy. And so yes. their pace is different. Um, but I'm saying now for physicians, um, you know, how do you think that they can facilitate that or, or, you know, not every MD is a PhD. So 
How yes, can we help and have that? Physicians, physicians are the most critical component to up, applying any of the, uh, the, the ideas that come from academic institutions, right? Because they are the ones facing the problem. And, you know, I want to simplify this back to what, what I was saying earlier about a nurse that's in the village clinic. She's, she's running into all these patients that have different conditions. This is something with a physician here, right? A physician here has patients that are coming in with actual problems. So, and how do you phrase that problem with a patient that's coming into the hospital into an academic question that can be answered uh, in, a, in, a research, uh, in a research project. So I think the amalgamation between understanding, actually incorporating physicians into, uh, into a research project that's being used in academic institute, institute actually might actually uh, speed things up because they are actually seeing what problems they're facing, what problems people face out there, right? What's the need and what needs to be done? And so the physicians are responsible for actually bringing those questions from the people into the labs. So I think the physicians are very important in, in actually bringing medicine to people. Oh, what an end note. Yeah. I, I... Couldn't say more. I think it is very important that you find a way to communicate effectively with the physicians because they are that front line where the research done in the background needs to be implemented. And um, yes. I, because I, I, before I, I, I want to make I want to make a comment about that again because honestly I think with the researchers we love the work we do. Sometimes we we go into the details. We are, we are so concerned about the details. We uh, we end up forgetting that there is actually a patient that's sick out there that needs to actually be, that has a problem that needs to be fixed, right? But having a physician in a project team, for example, when I was working on my, on my, uh, uh, on my model, for example, I had uh, two physicians on my, on, my, uh, on my advising team and two researchers, and then another, another research, uh, actually three researchers and two physicians. So they actually played a very big role in actually making sure that whatever uh, conversation that I was having with them had a clinical application to it. So sorry, sorry to cut you off. Thank you. Oh, no, I was, I was, thank you for adding that. I was going to ask if Cynthia had anything else before we jump into kind of final notes, because I thought that was a great jumping off point for the thoughts of the listeners. No, no, I, I definitely agree with um, with everything that he said regarding um, physicians bringing the questions, because I also work closely with a neurosurgeon right now. And um, a big topic of discussion was him not feeling like he could actually affect the um, possibilities or outcomes that his patients had. So some things that some problems or some diseases that he would see, if there was nothing already available for that, he just, there was just nothing available. And there was nobody that he could relay that problem to and say, this is a problem that you should work on so that this patient or other patients, um, you know, have, have um, some kind of therapy to look forward to or something to help them with that problem. So I definitely agree that uh, that's a good way that you know, us future physicians and, uh, you know, current physicians can definitely help. Yes. And, and I hope with in my current position, uh, or at least anyone in my, in, in my position should be able to have those conference, open conversation with, with physicians and say, look, uh, you know, we would like to learn what's happening in the clinic. Uh, what, what, what are you facing? And 
can those questions that you are facing in, in, in the clinic be uh, phrased in such a way that someone in the lab can actually tackle those problems? Then we may end up seeing uh, more, um, you know, obviously, applicable uh, therapies coming up. But I, I already this has been happening already. If, if you go into any acad big academic institute, uh, they are already doing this. But again, like what, what Cynthia is saying, in some cases, it doesn't seem like it. And there are some doctors that seem to feel like they're not connected to anybody that can help uh, to, um, you know, marry what they are doing in the clinic and to what to what's 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 supposed to be done in, uh, on the research team. And there are your perspectives on the physician. But before we go, I would love a nugget of advice for people out there that don't have a place where they necessarily fit in, but are very interested in science. Do you have anything to say for those folks out there? If you're interested in science, there, there are opportunities everywhere. And that's the truth. You just have to be interested enough uh, and look for those opportunities. And if you go to on LinkedIn, there are many, many people that are looking to connect with people to, and there are internships. If you are an undergrad, if you are a graduate student, there are people that you could connect with that can help you learn the trajectory of, uh, of your career. Do you wanna stay in uh, on the bench? There are many people that you can connect with that, with that can help you with that. And if you wanna go onto, onto the clinical side of, um, of research, there are many people that you can connect with. And again, to be effective in this world, you cannot wait for someone else to reach out to you. You have to reach out to people. Thank you very much for that. And what Goodwill meant by the bench, not, not playing in a sports game, but the lab bench working in a laboratory, just to quick clarify. But, uh, <laughs> but thank you very much for that, Goodwill. And um, again, this has been Dean Wirtz and... Cynthia Zoku. And this has been Pen Pals. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey, listeners. And thank you again, Goodwill. Thank you.